This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking. Today, it's an exploration of a guy named William Dudley Pelly, mystic, fascist, proto-contactee, I'm not sure if I invented that term or not, I don't think I will, and one-time employer of our old contactee pal, George Hunt Williamson. So here's the thing. William Dudley Pelly has has interested me, I was going to say fascinated, but really interested me since I got involved in looking at contactees, because his name has always come up in connection with George Hunt Williamson, and George Hunt Williamson was one of the original George Adamski witnesses to that initial contact with Orthon back in the day. So Pelly's name has always been floating around, and usually it's floating around in the context of Passages like this. This is from Tracks in the Desert, George Hunt Williamson and the Genesis of the Contactee Movement from um, some issue of the Excluded Middle, issue number three. I've gotten it in my wake up down there, Excluded Middle Collection. And this is what uh, Alec Hildell says. In addition to Williamson, his post-war circle is believed to have included seminal contactee George Adamski and others of the same kidney. Some authorities suggest that Pelly and Adamski first became acquainted as a result of their mutual interest in Guy Ballard's IM cult. There is also evidence to suggest that Pelly may have introduced Williamson to Adamski. So here's the thing that's always bugged me about this passage and, uh, and others like it. It's phrases like uh, the use of the passive voice in Williamson. Uh, in addition to Williamson, his post-war circle is believed. Is believed by whom? Just give me Give me a footnote. Uh, some authorities suggest that Pelly and Adamski first became acquainted as a result of their mutual interest in Guy Ballard. Which authorities? Just give me a page number. Give me a book. Give me a magazine article. Give me something. And so I've always sort of wondered what I would find if I tried to go back to whatever sources I could get my hands on, and it's not many, unfortunately, and try to figure out exactly what the relation was between William Dudley Pelly and his spiritual mystical beliefs, a little bit of his political beliefs, but mostly the spiritual mystical beliefs, how those sort of connect to early ufology and the contactee movement. And what I found, I think, I think this is what I found, and I think what you might perceive me to have found, is that some of the connections between Pelly and early ufology are a bit overstated, or at least not supported by the available evidence, and others are kind of understated and not talked about nearly enough. And so this is sort of how I sort of dug my way through the William Dudley Pelly paradox. It's not really a paradox, but the alliteration works. And um, we're going to, I don't know, maybe have some fun exploring some strange beliefs and some dangerous politics and some interesting side trails to early contacteeism. So some caveats and acknowledgements before we begin. Um, 
my major source for a lot of the the context and background to this is a book called William Dudley Pelly, A Life in Right-Wing Extremism and the Occult by Scott Beekman. It uh, was published in 2005 by Syracuse University Press, and it really is sort of the, the at least that I've found, the, the gold standard of books about Pelly. Another caveat, well, a first caveat, this episode is mostly going to be about the mystical sort of spiritualist side of Pelly's career um, and its connections to contacteeism and early UFO things. It's not necessarily about his career as a fascist rabble rouser leader of the Silver Legion and things like that. We're going to be talking about that, but not in the kind of depth that Beekman goes into or that the William Dudley Pelly episodes of the uh, Behind the Bastards podcast and the Empire Never Ended podcast episodes went into. So it's going to be biographical and then the mystical and spiritualist stuff because that's what ties in mostly with the contactee thing, really. And now William Dudley Pelly. So looking at his early life and his early writing career, Pelly was born in Massachusetts in 1890 to his parents, obviously, William and George Aspie Pelly and Grace Pelly. The family was often poor. Um, Father Pelly was largely unable to support his family with his chosen vocation as a Methodist minister. And he moved into other jobs, including being a newspaper reporter, a cobbler, a bunch of other things. Pelly's first mystical experience, which he related later in one of his autobiographical works, happened as a young child. He was under the age of five, if I'm doing the math right, of where he lived at the time. He said, a corner of the veil of eternal mortality was flashingly lifted, and he gained supernatural insight into the reality of reincarnation, and this would be a significant feature of his mystical thought in the future. As a child, Pelly also began his career in journalism, borrowing money from his father to buy a used printing press. At 12 years old, he published his first newspaper, which was designed for distribution in the schoolyard. He would be active in writing or publishing one thing or another for the rest of his life um, when he wasn't in federal prison. But let's just say for the rest of his life. His writing reflected several aspects of progressive era thought and the so-called new thought movement. There were elements of social gospel in there, condemning most churches for their excessive and incorrect dogma. Hell, for example, was a human invention, he argued. And he developed a social program based largely on the writing of Edward Bellamy in his 1888 utopian novel, Looking Backward. All corporations would be operated for the public benefit. Everyone would receive a fair share of the nation's wealth. It's a very sort of um, very sort of progressive era type of thing. During the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, he traveled around the world on behalf of the Methodist Centenary, and later he worked with the Red Cross. It was on this trip that he experienced a great deal of danger and threatened violence in Russia, and learning from the understandably anti-Bolshevik people he met developed the anti-communism that would come to epitomize his politics for decades. During the 1920s, he became a popular screenwriter in Hollywood, writing a couple films that starred Lon Chaney, such as The Light in the Dark from 1922 and The Shock from 1923. He was already well-known for writing award-winning short stories as well as novels, most of which were nauseatingly moralistic and grounded in the idea of the essential goodness of his vision of small-town America, which was rooted in his New England youth. He often set stories in small towns in Vermont that were based on the towns in which he grew up in Massachusetts. By the end of the 1920s, 
Pelly was growing disillusioned with Hollywood, and his thinking was being heavily influenced by the racist and anti-Semitic writings that gained prominence during the early 20th century. Especially by the 1920s, you had a connection between the sort of racial anti-Semitism that was prominent in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, combining with the anti-communism that sort of stemmed from the Bolshevik Revolution. A lot of conspiratorial thought of the time focused on the supposed connections between a worldwide Jewish conspiracy and a worldwide Bolshevik conspiracy. You had Henry Ford publishing his series, The International Jew, in the Dearborn Independent newspaper. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a forged document which proclaims that there is a international Jewish plot, that became uh, that became um, popular during the 1920s as well. You had books like The Rising Tide of Color and older books like The Passing of the Great Race that sort of talked about a supposed threat to white Anglo-Saxon um, Western culture from various minorities with the Jewish people being somewhat uh, targeted as ringleaders. You also had immigration restrictions targeting Eastern and Southern Europe beginning in 1924, mostly because of ethnic reasons, including a great deal of of anti-Semitic thought being a part of that as well. So he is increasingly consumed by matters of race. And by 1928, he wants to leave California. He he blames the the degradation of America in many ways on Hollywood, um, and he ties in uh, Jewish people who run studios as being part of that problem. He's contemplating his future one night in a bungalow in Altadena, California. It's May 28th, 1928, and he has a mystical experience that would influence the rest of his life. And he wrote about it in an article for the March 1929 issue of American Magazine. And this article was called Seven Minutes in Eternity. Pelly explains that he had been relaxing in his bungalow alone, where he had been on a writing retreat. He'd been reading, in his words, a notable volume on ethnology, which he described as a hobby of his, and he began to doze off. For most of the night, as he slept, nothing was strange. But then, something happened. But between three and four in the morning, the time later verified, a ghastly inner shriek seemed to tear through somnolent consciousness. In despairing horror, I wailed to myself, I'm dying, I'm dying. What told me? I don't know. Some uncanny instinct had been unleashed in slumber to awaken and warn me. Certainly something was happening to me, something that had never happened in all my life. A physical sensation which I can best describe as a combination of heart attack and apoplexy. He insists that this isn't a dream. It's something that had happened to his head or his heart or both. And he says that his conscious identity was at the play of forces over which it had no control. I was awake, mind you. And whereas I had been on a bed in the dark of a California bungalow when the phenomena started, the next I was plunging down a mystic depth of cool blue space, not unlike the bottomless sinking sensation that attends the taking of ether for anesthetic. Queer noises were singing in my ears, over and over in a curiously tumbled brain. The thought was preeminent. So is this death? He describes the feeling as being like in an airplane that is in a tailspin. But then, as he's falling through this strange void, someone reaches out and catches him. And what he calls a clear, calm, friendly voice talks in his ear. 
Take it easy, old man. Don't be alarmed. You're all right. We're here to help you. Someone had hold of me. I said two persons, in fact. One with a hand under the back of my neck supporting my weight, the other with arm run under my knees. I was physically flaccid from my tumble and unable to open my eyes as yet because of the sting of queer opal light that diffused the place into which I had come. When I finally managed it, I became conscious that I had been born to a beautiful marble slab palette and laid nude upon it by two strong-bodied, kindly-faced young men in white duck uniforms not unlike those worn by interns in hospitals who were secretly amused at my confusion and chagrin. Feeling better, the taller of the two asked considerately as physical strength to sit upright unaided came to me, and I took note of my surroundings. Yes. Where am I? Just a side note, I really wish that authors of various things would realize that someday someone might need to read excerpts of their writing on a podcast, and it would be really great if they would, I don't know, limit their sentence structure to something a little more simple than what you just heard. It is um, very long sentences in Pelly's writings. Very long. In any case, he asks where he is, and they exchange glances and tell him not to try to see everything in the first seven minutes. So there is, uh, we have a title now. So Pelly talks about how he had gone through all the sensations of dying, but he hadn't died, or at least he didn't think he'd died. Was he somewhere else? He's aware of a sense of inexpressible ecstasy, both mental and physical. And he describes his surroundings. He says it's a sort of marble tiled and furnished portico, lighted by that soft, unseen opal illumination with a clear-as-crystal Roman pool diagonally across from my bench on which I remained for a time, striving to credit that all of this was real. Everything beyond the portico is kind of indistinct. He says it's a sort of turquoise haze. He says he finds the two men who assisted him to be familiar, but he couldn't quite place them. And then he goes toward the pool and they tell him to bathe in it because he'll enjoy it. He says, this is one of the strangest incidents of the whole adventure. He says, when I came up from that bath, I was no longer conscious that I was nude. On the other hand, neither was I conscious of having donned clothes. The bath did something to me in the way of clothing me. What? I don't know. So he's basically dressed by the magic water. And then he starts meeting other people. And he says, think of all the saintly, attractive, magnetic folk you know. Imagine them constituting the whole social world. No misfits, no tense countenances, no sour leers, no preoccupied brusqueness or physical handicap, and the whole environment of life permeated with an ecstatic harmony as universal as air. And you'll get an idea of my reflections in those moments. So he's in this wonderful place where everybody is perfect. He doesn't have to worry about people who are misfits. He doesn't have to worry about people with physical handicaps or who are preoccupied or any of the other things that make the real world real. It's... You get some idea of some of his prejudices, at least, from what he thinks an ideal environment would be, right? You know, these things are absent. Therefore, this place, this place is great. So he talks to people. He, you know, interacts with people. And he is very serious in conveying that this was a real experience that he had. I pledge my prestige and reputation that I talked with these people identified many of them, called others by their wrong names and was corrected, saw and did things that night almost a year ago that it is verboten for me to narrate in a magazine article, but which I recall with a minuteness of detail as graphic as I see the keys of my typewriter now under my fingers. 
Regardless of the fact that imagination is the chief asset in one of my vocation, I am not given to particularly graphic dreams. Certainly, we never dream by the process of coming awake first, knowing that we are suffering some kind of heart or head attack, swooning and coming abruptly a conscious again in the arms of two kindly persons who will reassure one audibly that everything is quite all right. Nor do the impressions of a dream stay with us. At least they never have so stayed with me. That after a year, such an experience is as vivid as many of my experiences in Siberia during the late World War. So my question is, what the heck happened in this weird blue void place that it is verboten for him to narrate in a magazine article, but that he remembers with detail as graphic as he sees the keys of his typewriter? That sounds, that sounds actually, I'm not sure you could actually say that you did things that you can't talk about in a magazine in 1929. I'm just kidding. Things were kind of saucy back in the 1920s. But wow, it's it's a little it's a little uh, it's a little intense. So then he gets sent back home, and it's a an interesting sensation. Not uh, not unlike um, not unlike his arrival in this strange place, but slightly different. Instantly, instead of real biliousness, I was caught in a swirl of bluish vapor that seemed to roll in from nowhere in particular. Instead of plunging prone, I was lifted and elevated up. Up, up, I seemed to tumble feet first, despite the ludicrousness of the description. A long, swift, swirling journey of this. And then something clicked. Something in my body. The best analogy is the sound my repeating deer rifle makes when I work the ejector mechanism. A flat, metallic, automatic sensation. So his soul, sort of, almost literally, clicked back into his body. That's an interesting way of of describing it. And, and you can sort of tell that that he's an experienced writer the way he phrases some of these things. So where was he? Well, he's got uh he's got an idea about that. Call it the hereafter, call it heaven, call it purgatory, call it any one of the astral planes, call it a hyperdimension, call it what you will. Whatever it is and where that human entities go after being released from physical limitations, I had gone there that night. And like Lazarus of old, I had been called back, back to the anguish, in comparison, of physical existence to finish out my time in the conventional manner. Up to the time of writing this article, almost a year later, I have not had the slightest inclination toward a repetition of the episode. Dreams I have had, and occasionally a fine old-fashioned nightmare, but have known them for such. Somehow or other, in sleep that night, I unhooked something in the strange mechanism that is spirit in matter, and from seven to ten minutes my own conscious entity, that is Bill Pelly, writing man, slipped over on the other side. There is a survival of human entity after death of the body, for I have seen and talked intelligently with friends whom I have looked down upon as cold wax and caskets. But that is not all. There is plenty of aftermath. To describe the effects of the experience, however, it is necessary to intrude a few personal confidences, none of which I am eager to make. I brought something back with me from that ecstatic interlude, something that had interpenetrated my physical self and which suddenly began to function in strange powers of perception. He goes through a bit of his personal autobiography, talking about his relationship with religion, his rejection of a lot of the the strict orthodox dogmas of Christianity, but it's still his belief in, in a divine sort of super being. And then near the end, he starts to return to what he had experienced and how it had changed him. 
I saw no vision, but something had happened and was continuing to happen. A cascade of pure, cool, wonderful peace was falling down from somewhere above me and cleansing me. My book fell from my fingers to the rug and stayed there. I sat staring into space. I was not the same man I had been a moment before. As he sits in his dark room with, supposedly, only his dog, he becomes aware of other presences around him. He says there are living, vibrant personalities with him in the same room. And the dog notices, too. She wags her tail at some of them. Apparently, though, at nothing. And one of them came and stood by his desk, and he realizes that something he had always sort of dismissed out of hand, psychic phenomenon and spiritualism, might be real. And something, whatever it was that had happened to him, had a connection to these sorts of things. What really had happened was I had unlocked hidden powers within myself that I know every human being possesses and had augmented my five physical senses with other senses just as bona fide, legitimate, and natural as touch, taste, smell, sight, and hearing. That I had help in unlocking those hidden powers I do not deny. Nevertheless, nothing had happened to me that has not happened to hundreds of other people. Only in very rare cases do they talk about it. What those hidden powers are, and why I maintain that they are bona fide, legitimate, and natural, I will have to leave to another article. But they had suddenly shown me that life was not at all the ordinary, humdrum, three meals a day thing I had always accepted. Its essence and its meaning was so vast and fine and high and beautiful that it overwhelmed me, and a recognition of it performed a sort of recreation in me that made me feel I was just not the same fellow I had just been before. He is convinced he visited a realm beyond life, into the other spheres of existence, and met with departed spirits or some essence of people who had once been human there. He believes he now has the ability to communicate with these people and that he has new abilities and knowledge that he didn't have before. And what he experienced has implications for all of humanity. The day is coming in the evolution of the race when spirituality is going to be the whole essence of life instead of the world's present materialism. Here and there are those who by their unusual visions, so to speak, self-invited or otherwise, might be called monitors for the rest of us, showing us what anyone may attain if he so orders his life and thinking as to be susceptible to such revelations. I believe that nature, God, universal spirit, give the great cause any name you will, is taking this method of the unusual experiences happening to the monitors to give the whole race an inspiration by which it may quicken its spiritual pace. There is nothing more prohibitive morally or ethically in exploring these new great fields of real reality than in exploring the fields of radio or atomic energy. In fact, the great cause means that we shall explore them. So, the big question in my mind, is this a contact account? I think it is. I mean, it's not a flying saucer contact account, but some of those contactee stories, as we've seen, don't have actual flying saucers in them. George Hunt Williamson communicated by automatic writing. George Van Tassel and others channeled messages. But there's a lot of similarities here. Being taken to a strange place, an unfamiliar environment. Um, be Meetings with beings who have, apparently, powers that normal people don't have, but they're clearly human in some way. Um, coming out of the experience with a, a renewed sort of mission or sense of purpose. These are all very similar to contact these stories. 
and I, I admit I am looking at things from a, a contacty UFO contacty centric perspective. Scott Beekman observes that Pelly's description of his seven minutes in eternity really conforms to William James's description of a religious conversion experience as outlined in his classic study, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Beekman argues that Pelly's conversion experience follows James's pattern of an old, exhausted, sick soul escaping into an experience in which they surrender themselves and following the experience. They feel strengthened and renewed, possessing, in Beekman's words, a new and frequently permanent sense of determination and strength. From this point on, Pelly's focus becomes this new spiritual direction. He abandons his Hollywood career, and he, and he hooks up with some other people in the field, including a woman named Mary Dario, Dario I, I'm bad at French, the chair of the Publications Committee of the American Society for Psychical Research. And Pelly is going to move back east, settling in New York City, and become ensconced in the New York City spiritualist scene. He'll attend seances, he'll go to other events, he'll speak on his seven minutes in heaven, and he's going to begin to try to carve out a new career as, I guess, someone who had a spiritual experience and as a spiritualist. And he has some reason to think that this might be possible. Um, his article, Seven Minutes in Eternity article in American Magazine, generated 7,000 letters from readers who were interested or who had their own experiences or wanted to know more about his ideas and potential teaching. By 1930, he's making money with his supposed psychic powers, giving clairaudient channeled messages to groups and, and printing them up and making them available to the public, giving lectures and insights uh, based on his experiences. And he also expands his repertoire of psychic abilities to include psychometry or, or psychically reading things from physical objects. We did an episode about psychometry oh, several years ago. He'll establish Galahad Press and begin publishing a magazine called The New Liberator. And he had some high expectations of this endeavor. He claimed that he was taking on this job not out of quote, a spirit of grandiose evangelism or fanatical proselytism, but as one who would take his universal brethren up into new mountains of transfiguration, bidding them behold with their own eyes that religion and science or spirituality and materialism are but mosaic facets of the same eternal jewel. Well, that certainly sounds like a pretty ambitious thing that he is attempting. The magazine has a rough start, and within a year or so, Pelly sort of reorganizes things and creates the League for the Liberation, which is the first point at which he's beginning to merge his spiritual ideas with a notion for a large national organizational structure. He viewed the League for the Liberation as, quote, a great Christ force, international perhaps someday in scope, that should throw a stern gauntlet to the satanic influences now seeking the debauchment of our present civilization. End quote. He developed a series of programs of service, which outlined a sort of order of service for weekly gatherings. These gatherings would include a clairaudiently received message, a lecture, and a group discussion based on Pelly's writings. Pelly claimed that this would project an entirely new religious philosophy, he said, a philosophy of Christian mysticism raised to ideality, but minus the hatreds, vengeances, and preposterous absurdities of the Jewish God of jealousy. He wanted to build a nationwide organization with directors at the national level and, and regional levels and down to numerous local chapters. And by 1932, there were 400 of these local chapters, most based on the West Coast due to Pelly's numerous contacts out there and his work 
in that area for so long. He's then given 300 acres in North Carolina by a woman named Lillian Terry, who is a wealthy mystic. His connections in the mystical, spiritualist world are paying off in some big ways. And he establishes the Foundation for Christian Economics and creates Galahad College, a small school based in some old YMCA buildings that students can pay $150 to attend. That's about $3,000 in today's money for a summer semester course consisting of 105 William Dudley Pelly lectures, which would teach them about the metaphysical evolution of the world from the projection of the planet down through every phase of secular and sacred history to the present. 73 would graduate, but expenses were really high. So Galahad College became a correspondence school. So what was Pelly's religious worldview? What does it mean to have something minus the hatreds, vengeances, and preposterous absurdities of the Jewish god of jealousy? Okay, here we go. There are three major forces in the universe. There's the universal spirit, quote, from which all things proceed, and which is of all things the substance, end quote. Then there's the spirit of the group, which is an animating force within all of what Pelly called the lower forms of creation. Finally, there's humanity, which possesses mind, body, and soul, all three of those things together. Now, all of these things have been created by the divine mind 28 million years ago. In Pelly's conception, the Christian God figure exists, but only as one of many different gods. And God is an older spirit on a faraway planet who has responsibility for our solar system. But humans aren't directly accountable to God in any sort of, you know, sort of judgment kind of way. Uh, Jesus Christ is around, often referred to as the great avatar. Christ was a spirit who incarnated on earth, was defined as the one law and force and harmony that is love. Under these terms, Pelly would consistently identify himself as a Christian, but not the kind of Christian who followed man-made dogma, which was, in his words, ignorant of the great psychical fundamentals. So then we get to the origins of life on earth. So life on earth began when a bunch of souls from another planetary system, the Sirius star system, which some of you might recognize as being a significant star system in another bunch of theories and things, even a whole book about Sirius that we might talk about at some point on the show. So these star guests came from Sirius to Earth between 30 to 50 million years ago. And Initially, they inhabited various animal forms, or that's how they incarnated. And then later, a creature that was basically like a sphinx. But eventually, they incarnate into ape-like bodies, which causes the difference between humans and other primate species. And this basically was the means by which these souls, by incarnating into these apes, they lose their connection to the wider mystical world or their power of thought generation, as Pelly called it. And they, quote, gradually became the races of man as society now recognizes it. And he believed that this would reconcile different theories of creation and evolution. He's sort of taking a bit of each. There was a, a spontaneous creation of sentient life on Earth, but then, you know, evolution sort of took over from that. Pelly also believed that this system of creation kind of explained the existence of different religious beliefs on Earth, because all the different religious beliefs on Earth were basically corrupted 
incomplete forms of the original higher spirituality, and that was lost when the incarnation into the ape-like beings that were sort of primordial humans took place. Another thing that is central to Pelly's philosophy or cosmic worldview or religion or whatever you want to call this is the concept of reincarnation. Human souls are reborn every 500 years or so, he says, with little periods of rest and recreation between incarnations. And as humanity develops, if they develop, they move between different layers of reality, different spheres, he calls them. And they if they're lucky or if they're they're good or if they're they're conscientious and and in tune with higher thoughts they incarnate into higher and higher spheres of existence as they go throughout their various lives on the first sphere for example you've got no vegetation it's total darkness and there are vile people living there because they are horrible and they don't have much information and they're ignorant but sometimes people in like the physical world, contact these spirits in this first sphere. And Pelly explains that if you receive messages from a Ouija board, for example, it's probably these dark, vile spirits in the first sphere. The second sphere is slightly better. Um, they're people who are basically just ignorant and weak. The third sphere is basically a purified version of Earth. And then as you go up the other various spheres, there are you know, things just get exponentially better as you go. Pelly believed that his seven minutes in eternity experience took place on the seventh sphere, but there are other souls um, who dwell on the ninth and tenth spheres who are just basically perfect, and they come down and communicate with us and help us. Now, as Beekman points out in his biography of Pelly, there are alarming parallels between what Pelly has developed in his spiritual construction of how everything works and the theosophical movement or the various branches of the theosophical movement, including Helena Blavatsky's. Now, Pelly claimed that while he was, you know, familiar with some of the tenets of theosophy, that nothing he wrote about or talked about in his magazines or books, this conception of higher levels and reincarnation and he didn't use this phrase, but the theosophists would, ascended masters providing guidance and care and insight for those of us on the earthly plane who can discern their message, that, you know, all of that came from his clairaudient messages. You know, it's just a coincidence that it's very, very similar to theosophy. And we've brought this up before, but you can draw a direct line from theosophy to the Borderland Sciences Research Associates channelings to the stories of contactees uh, meeting space brothers, some of whom have the same names as ascended masters. You can draw a, a sort of line through this development from the late 19th century on up to the 1940s and 50s. And Pelly is part of that line. Pelly is one of these people who developed a spiritual system and marketed a spiritual system that was clearly based on theosophy. Some differences, but there were variations within theosophy itself, right? So it's part of this through line of American spiritualism that goes back quite a ways, back to seances without ascended masters, but just voices from beyond the veil that later would be given personalities and, and sort of built up into 
sort of almost a pantheon. Now, it wasn't just theosophy that Pelly borrowed some ideas from. There's also um, something called pyramidism, sort of a belief or knowledge or conception that the Great Pyramid of Giza has magical powers or mystical relevance. And the branch of pyramidism that Pelly latched onto, I'm going to let Wikipedia define it. Wikipedia says, some pyramidologists claim that the Great Pyramid of Giza has encoded within it predictions for the exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt, the crucifixion of Jesus, the start of World War II, the founding of modern-day Israel in 1948, and future events including the beginning of Armageddon. This was discovered by using what they call pyramid inches to calculate the passage of time where one British inch equals one solar year. Yes, that is a real thing that some people believed, that that prophetic messages were encoded within the Great Pyramid of Giza. One of the pyramidologists, and the one that Pelly latched onto, is a guy with the improbable name of David Davidson. And David Davidson was a pyramidologist who sort of pioneered some of these ideas. And what really spoke to Pelly about pyramidism is that Davidson had a theory that one of the dates he discovered encoded in the pyramid was a significant date in human history for reasons he wasn't entirely clear on. But what was that date? May 29th, 1928, the night that Pelly had his seven minutes in eternity experience. Now, tying into some of Pelly's prejudices and racial ideas, Davidson would end up becoming a British Israelist. Um, British Israelism is too complex to go into here, but the upshot of it is it's a uh, sort of racist anti-Semitic notion that the original inhabitants of Great Britain, the the Anglo-Saxon people, who weren't the original inhabitants, but their history is really not great on a number of levels, but that the Anglo-Saxon people are actually the descendants of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. So who are God's real chosen people? White folks. This would be a, a troublingly popular and um, well-adhered-to idea in Britain and in the United States and is one of the roots of the Christian identity movement, which is uh, very similar to to those ideas, which really is is beyond our scope here. But um, if you've heard about it, you'll sort of recognize some of those ideas. Over time, Pelly developed an increasingly apocalyptic view of the end that might be coming. When would this end come? Well, the pyramidologists said that uh, September 17th, 2001 was the second coming of Christ with bad things happening. Uh, all the way up until then, sort of a tribulation period, if you will, if you want to look at it in that sort of eschatological thing, thing, sense, manner, uh, better word there. Pelly believed there would be an ongoing and ever-increasing struggle and battle between the forces of Antichrist and the forces of light. And initially, early on in the early 1930s, he does not really identify who these forces of Antichrist are. That would change. And we're going to look at how that changes and the political aspects and economic aspects of Pelly's thought. And then we will get to flying saucers. Don't worry. We're going to look at all of that after the break. (laughs) 
We will be back in a week as usual, fielding your questions and comments about this episode. Might have some extra surprises. We've had a lot of extra surprises in the last couple off-week segments, so we'll see what we can come up with for this one. And then on our next regular episode, we're back with our old friend from Japan, Shoichi Harakawa, and we're going to be catching our breath after Pelly's mysticism and three episodes of the Philadelphia Experiment. So it's going to be a little bit lighter, a little bit shorter, and um, should be a lot of fun. If you like The Saucer Life and want more, you can support us in exchange for bonus content from both this show and our fellow Chizo Media show, Great Lakes Lore. You can check it out at patreon.com slash Media or via the link in the show notes, or just Google Saucer Life Patreon. That will get you there too. Last I checked, it was the top result when you Google those three words, which probably don't ever get searched together under any other circumstance. You can check out past episodes in your favorite podcast app or at saucerlife.com where there's some other goodies. You can download the episodes directly as an MP3 without messing with RSS feeds. I've got some reviews of saucer-related material from over the years, all kinds of interesting things. You can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, and you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. And The Saucer Life, if you're listening to this, you know it's available anywhere you find podcasts, and several places you can't. So now I've stalled long enough. Let's get back to William Dudley Pelly and let's get back to the political and economic and fascist elements of his thought. So Pelly had for a long time since his adventures in Russia slash the Soviet Union during the Bolshevik Revolution. Ever since that time, he had had a, a fairly solid anti-communist leaning. But even in the early 1930s, he was not yet connecting the global communist conspiracy to anti-Semitism. But it's it's starting to change, and it's starting to connect to his spiritual teachings, the dark souls we mentioned. He said they were marshalling communist forces under the sort of disguise of peaceful demonstrators against you know hunger and for additional government financial support. This is the era of the, the bonus army marching on Washington. All of this was designed, Pelly believed, to bring down the American government. And what's interesting is he and interesting in the sense of slightly nonsensical until you sort of look at the way the language is coded. He links the communist elements of the takeover to vast international financial groups, which on the surface, you've got this, haha, yeah, communists, but the capitalists, you know, yeah, they're going to work together. Sure, pal. Until you sort of think about the usual anti-Semitic implications of vast international finance groups as a label. Pelly would come to believe that these dark souls needed to be fought in ways other than just spiritual, and he created the Silver Legion of America on January 31st, 1933, to combat this worrying combination of communism and <clears throat> international finance. And there were two sources of inspiration uh, from this. He would claim that he had received a clairaudient message from the spirits who communicated with him that told him to start a paramilitary organization. But also, there were some happenings overseas that played a role. In Pelly's words, the rise of Adolf Hitler to the German chancellorship, with an immediate exodus of Hebrews from Germany, supplied the key that unlocked a staggering sequence 
in my own progression. The thing is, Pelly already had an organization and organizational structure and membership all set up with the whole liberation thing and Galahad College all there in North Carolina. So he wasn't really starting from scratch. He just takes the League of Liberation and makes it more militant and more openly anti-Semitic and more political in a lot of ways. So he renames uh, Galahad College to the Liberation Fellowship, and his new Liberation Weekly just becomes Liberation and was the official magazine of the Silver Legion, which later um, watchdog groups would call the most pro-Nazi and racist publication in the United States. So there you go. He then just sort of slams his membership with materials and announcements about the new group, trying to convince them that really nothing had changed. It's just a more active, more militant version of what they've been doing. But the problem is that despite some of the the racial elements and, and sort of ethno-nationalist elements sometimes of some of the theosophically derived spiritualist teachings Pelly had, there's a big sort of gulf sometimes in what people are willing to openly express that they believe between that and, you know, we're big fans of this Hitler guy. Uh, and so membership drops off. There isn't a big surge of, yes, we want to join this new organization. So so Pelly is left in a situation where people are leaving the spiritualist side once his organization sort of goes full tilt fascist. And he never really recovers financially from that. The The Silver Legion is going to have a lot of financial problems, embezzlement, lots of infighting, lots of splinter groups. It's never the most well-organized, um, with-it organization. Now, Pelly had big plans for this. This wasn't just going to be an organization. This was going to eventually lead to a new government for the United States. There would be different departments, departments. There would be local departments. There would be sort of an elite group called the Silver Rangers, a department of industrial relations, junior activities for the kids, foreign affiliates of the Silver Shirts all over the place. Um, there would be sort of state or national level um, sort of cabinet departments in this theocratic state and the theocracy, the theology that this new, new United States would follow is Pelly's religion. Um, so these cabinet-level sort of departments would be public enlightenment, patriotic probity, crime erasement, and public morals and mercy. So the public morals and mercy department is particularly chilling. It would be, in Beekman's words in his biography of Pelly, it would be in charge of placing all vagabonds in concentration centers, censoring the press, and arresting persons responsible for motion pictures that depicted violence. Now, anybody could join the Silver Legion as long as you were over 18 and weren't black or Jewish. And when you joined, you pledged to, quote, respect and sustain the sanctity of the Christian ideal, to nurture the moral tradition and civic, domestic and spiritual life, and the culture of the wholesome, natural and inspirational in art, literature, music and drama, to adulate and revere an aristocracy of intellect, talent and character purpose in the body politic, to sponsor and acclaim aggressive ideals in the pride of craftsmanship rather than the golden serpent of profit, that the lowliest individual may aspire to a life of fullest flower 
to exalt patriotism and pride of race, and in the interest of progress and evolution, to recognize the integrity of every nation and to seek and perceive his place in the fellowship of peoples, end quote. So they're called the Silver Shirts because they wore silver shirts, um, along with blue corduroy pants and a necktie with their membership number on it, which sounds like the dorkiest thing ever. No, actually, the dorkiest thing ever is the giant L on the sort of chest of the uh, sort of breast pocket of the silver shirts. The L, which I always assumed stood for legion because it's the silver legion, actually signified love, loyalty, and liberation. And that was also the main motif on their flag. It was it's a sort of black L on a white flag. Pelly created also an economic system to go along with his political and cultural goals that did a lot of interesting things. It limited the amount of money people could make. Money was sort of eliminated because paper money is bad and replaced with energy certificates, they were called, that represented the value of your work that you contributed to society as a whole. So money basically. And everybody was guaranteed as long as they were, you know, not black or Jewish, was guaranteed a a share of the profits of the American sort of economy or the gross domestic product or however he phrased it in his strange ways as part of a um, sort of a reflection of what they contributed. So we're getting rid of money and replacing it with something that is very much like money, only we're calling it something different. He also established a secretary of Jewry who would be responsible for organizing the Jewish populations of cities into Beth Havens or ghettos, as they would be called in Europe. And this would be where Jewish residents of a place were required to live and work and stay. And they would be supposedly protected and, you know, safe in there. But to leave the Beth Haven would be, um, you'd be subject to being shot, basically. So how successful was it? It depends. If you listen to Pelly, um, they had thousands and thousands and thousands of members and chapters in all 48 states. If you look at the records, it's a little more difficult to tell because of shoddy record keeping and, and you know how many records have been lost or destroyed. But we can solidly say that there were chapters in 22 states. There were a lot of members. And looking at the looking at the the membership, the members were concentrated in in California and in several states in the Midwest. It wasn't equal distribution in all parts of the country by any means. But despite the relative success that the Silver Legion experienced, and it was the foremost sort of right-wing militant group in the country for a while, later to be sort of eclipsed by the German-American Bund, which had official connections to the Nazi government in Germany. Um, despite that, there were a lot of problems. I mentioned financial irregularities and infighting and splits and things like that. Probably the biggest issue that the Silver Legion faced during the 1930s was Pelly going on trial for securities fraud, basically illegal sales of securities in North Carolina. This was in 1935, and he was sentenced to five years hard labor 
but it was the sentence was suspended and he was able to to publish a a circular to be sold that raised money to pay for some of his legal fees and things in the circular he explained that he was the victim of a jewish plot which is probably about the most predictable thing you think he might have said. But the problem, among the many problems with his being convicted for securities fraud, is that it took him away from the day-to-day running of the organization and people left in droves, not just because things started to fall apart, but also because, you know, when your boss's criminal trials in the paper, it tends to make you second guess whether or not this is an organization you really need to belong to. And there were no shortage of racist, fascist-leaning, right-wing organizations in the United States in the 1930s. So while the people who left earlier on the spiritual side went to other spiritualist organizations, people who left after the trial and after that sort of mini-collapse of the Silver Shirts sort of left for other right-wing groups, which makes sense. And another spiritualist group that arose during this time that owed a lot, not just to the older theosophical movement, but also to Pelley's idea of things, was something called the I Am movement, established by Guy Ballard and his wife, Edna. And this, we've, I think we've mentioned the I Am movement before, and, and we're going to do a deep dive on the I Am movement at some point. But in 1930, Guy Ballard allegedly met the Count Saint Comte Saint Germain on Mount Shasta. And while the Ballards swiped a lot of their ideas from Blavatsky's theosophy and um, the idea of these ascended masters, just placing Saint Germain and Jesus at the top of the ascended master pantheon, some of their writings, especially some of the stuff from Edna Ballard, had a real debt to Pelley's ideas as well. Um, they quoted his book, Christian Democracy, um, or his essay, Christian Democracy, where he explains his his political ideas. They cite his book, No More Hunger, which explains his economic ideas. And there's a a distinctly very Pelley-like, anti-New Deal, conservative slant to a lot of what the Ballards wrote about. Nothing as extreme as Pelley's ideas, really. Nothing that would drive away those who had left Pelley's organization, his spiritualist organization, when everything went all silver shirty. Um, nothing that would drive away those people who went to the I Am movement from Pelley's earlier teachings. But there's there's definitely uh, definitely a a debt there, and they they sort of and I I think this is this is kind of tongue in cheek, kind of funny. But in the the second I Am book. Uh, they uh, they introduce a new ascended master, a lesser one. He's not one of the he's not one of the the, the starters, right? He's not part of the starting lineup, but he's his name is Pelier, so sort of a a Frenchified version of Pelly's name, which is which is kind of fun. So I'm looking at the time, and it looks like we might want to start moving on to get to the saucer stuff. Thanks for your patience as we've basically been doing history time, the history life here. But one thing I I, I want to sort of mention as we start to pull some strings and, and draw some, some connecting lines here, you've got the I am movement taking things from Pelly to develop their own sort of derivative theosophical ideas. You've also got Later on, you've got the contactees like George Adamski taking things from Pelly, taking things from Ballard, who took things from 
Pelly in in many ways. The Ascended Masters are just sort of Venusians without spaceships, if you want to think about it that way. But one other thing that was going on that I want to mention that, again, is subject to a deep dive later on, is that another thing happening in California in the early 1930s was George Adamski establishing his Royal Order of Tibet. And a new book has just been published um, that reprints some of Adamski's earliest writings from this period, along with newspaper clippings about the founding of the Royal Order of Tibet. We're going to be getting into that at some point in the future, not in this episode. But if we're trying to trace the connections between some of the earliest contactees and a figure like William Dudley Pelly, we can't ignore that Adamski was doing spiritualist stuff in California, which is one of the places where Pelley's organization was very active in the early 1930s. Now, these organizations and their beliefs were not were not alike. There's not a lot of ideological overlap between them. Um, Adamski's stuff is is very much more focused on his cosmic philosophy type, or what he would later call his cosmic philosophy. He's tying it into a lot of Buddhist concepts, but the whole area of Buddhism claiming to have studied in Tibet and things like that. There are connections between the sort of geographically Tibet and sort of ancient pseudo-historical, pseudo-archaeological roots of the Aryan, so-called Aryan race, right? You know, Hitler was sending archaeo well, Himmler actually was sending archaeological or anthropological expeditions to Tibet to measure people's faces, to do sort of phrenology stuff to see if um, they were, you know, the true Aryan people. So you can't ignore all of these connections. But we're going to move further into the future, talk a little bit about what happened to Pelly, and then get into where the flying saucers come into all this. In the late 1930s, as Nazi Germany became more aggressive in Europe, and especially by 1938, 1939, as Europe moved toward war, and then as war breaks out in Europe in September of 1939, the Roosevelt administration began to take steps to push against some of the legal restrictions on um, arming and funding Germany's enemies, the neutrality acts that were passed in the mid-1930s. They also took more steps to crack down or limit the amount of pro-German propaganda that was spreading in the United States through organizations and individuals, some of whom were connected directly to the German government. Now, Pelly came under scrutiny of the House Un-American Activities Committee in the late 1930s and early 1940s for his stridently pro-German stance, and, and honestly, his long history of statements that were very much sort of in tune with what was going on in Germany at the time, as we've seen. Um, after the war started, Pelly sort of ramped down some of his uh, his anti-interventionist rhetoric um, because, you know, there was a war on, but he just couldn't help sort of, you know, stirring the pot. He had another magazine called The Galilean, and it published articles like The Spiritual Significance of America's Armageddon the religious truth behind world conflagration and things like that. Lots of criticism of um, of the Roosevelt administration. He said that the destruction of the American fleet at Pearl Harbor and the loss of the Philippines was, quote, divine justice for the punishment of 
America's various crimes, which got the attention of the government. Beginning in 1942, he had to submit all publications to the post office for approval before they'd be distributed. And he was arrested in 1942, in April of 1942, and charged with sedition. And the evidence of sedition was that a copy of the Galilean magazine was found in the duffel bag of a soldier. So if sedition is, you know, undermining of the United States's fighting for one definition, undermining the United States's fighting forces during a time of war, and that's sort of one example of a kind of sedition, that's what Pelly was in trouble for. So Pelly goes on trial and the prosecution's main sort of accusation is that Pelly is publishing German, pro-German propaganda and undermining the United States military by doing so. And they did this by bringing in expert witnesses who analyzed common German propaganda themes and then compared that to what Pelly had written in this, in this magazine. And the prosecution sort of draws this, this tacit connection between um, Pelly's work and what Germany would want somebody to do. And they make the implication without any support whatsoever that that Pelly was an agent of the German government. And there were no links between Pelly and the German government. But uh, the defense didn't pick up on that. The defense didn't do a very good job of pointing out that there's no actual evidence that that Pelly was acting as a foreign agent or working for a foreign power. Maybe these things weren't good things to say, but you know, it doesn't rise to the level of sedition and and you know, treasonous behavior, but the defense doesn't do that. Instead, they they publish a list of of witnesses that Pelly wants to call and uh, it's it's a sort of an array of of it's a bizarre list, actually. There's um, the Federal Reserve Chairman he wants to call as a hostile witness. He wants to call Charles Lindbergh, who not just an aviator, but a, a strident voice for America, keeping America out of the World War in the 1930s. And he wants to call retired General George Van Horn Mosley. If you recognize that name, that's because this is the father of UFO legend Jim Mosley. Now, I knew from reading Mosley's memoir that he did not have a good relationship with his father, that there were political differences. He described his father as very right wing. But it wasn't until I saw this connection with Pelly that I, I really looked into just how right wing he was. When he was still a general, he, um, he had a plan for the Civilian Conservation Corps to be basically turned into mandatory military training. He resigned from the army in 1938, uh, describing the New Deal as a dictatorship. He said that Nazism was would be good for the United States, that it would be an antitoxin. Quote, the finest type of Americanism can breed under there, the Nazis' protection, as they neutralize the efforts of the communists. Um, that's not great. So he was impressed with the patriotism of the German-American Bund, which was the 
you know, a league that was in connection with the Nazi government, sort of the, the Nazis people in the United States. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, he wrote a letter to former President Herbert Hoover saying that Pearl Harbor was a conspiracy by the British government and the Jews uh, to get the United States into the war. Wow. It's it's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff. Um, it's a lot of stuff here. Now, none of these these witnesses appeared. The defense did a very poor job. I, I think the the funniest thing that happened in uh, in, in Pelly's sedition trial was that his own lawyer accidentally referred to Pelly as Mister Hitler instead of Mister Pelly. That's um, it's hard to recover from that in front of a jury. He was sentenced to prison and would serve out the rest of the war at the federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, but he would be paroled in 1950. He would move back to Indiana, where he had relocated his operations from uh, North Carolina. He was in Noblesville, Indiana, which at the time was a small town north of Indianapolis. Now it's part of the massive suburban sprawl north of Indianapolis. Now, one of the terms of his parole was that he was not allowed to engage in any sort of political writing, publishing activity of any kind at all, which meant a return to the spiritualist side of things with a new organization and a new sort of philosophy or a new name for his old philosophy called Soulcraft. And this is the organization that is usually brought up when people are connecting Pelly to the earliest flying saucer stuff. Because what he did basically, was take the old liberation things from the 1930s, that school of thought, and add flying saucers to them to sort of give it a new angle. And it's not just about finding a new angle. It's not just about finding a new angle to to get more people interested in his ideas. It also goes back to what we talked about a while ago, that idea of pyramidism, that 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 system of predicting the future based on measurements of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Because the problem is, there was a critical prophetic date that Pelly had talked about, August 20th, 1953. And Pelly and other pyramidists said that this would be the dawning of the age of Aquarius. But as with most predictions like this, nothing actually happened. So what Pelly does is he says the UFOs, the, the flying saucers, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. This is the harbinger of this new age that the pyramidists were talking about. And Pelly didn't just write his own stuff about UFOs in his magazines. He also utilized the services of one of the people we've talked about in the past, George Hunt Williamson. Now, Williamson wrote a lot of articles for the magazine Valor, which Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of copies of Valor available online, and the ones that are available online aren't the ones with Williamson's Flying Saucer articles. I am working on getting access to some of those through a university archive, but with staffing shortages and some restrictions still in place because of those staffing shortages, it took me longer than was realistic to to get that stuff for this episode, but I'm I'm working on it. What I do have that I was able to get access to are some issues of another Soulcraft magazine from 1953 and 1954 called Bright Horizons, in which there are a number of unsigned UFO articles, and these might have been written by Pelly, some of them, and others might have been written by Williamson. We know from the 
weird hagiographic Williamson biography that's out there that Williamson wrote some uncredited, uncompensated articles for Pelly before he officially came on staff. So let's look at what we can find about the UFOs in Bright Horizons magazine. Now, none of these articles carry bylines. So a lot of times I think it's Pelly. Sometimes I wonder if it could be somebody else like Williamson. The timelines kind of work. But let's just see what we have here. The first issue that I have that discusses this is September of 1953. And the title is, Will the Saucer Men that's hyphenated, aid in Armageddon as we conceive it. And it begins with this almost impossible to understand opening line. Mayhap it is time to alter our thinking about dispensational cataclysm in our affairs. Nobody should ever use the word mayhap. I, I, I do not like that word at all. So this article talks about the supposed end of the world, Armageddon, it brings in some uh, Book of Revelation type stuff, and then it brings in the flying saucers to this end of the world scenario. Hence, we now confront the equally stupendous circumstance that perchance the time of the end truly means the end of all things that are vile and ungodlike. Atomic bombs are not to be allowed to fall and make a cinder of civilization and those familiar with the divine speakings of the Golden Scripts know the true answers. What's going to happen is the arrival of so-called heavenly messengers and cosmic helpers who are slated to wield terrific power and save humankind from itself, from the Luciferians, and from its own leaders who are blindly striving to lead the blind without divine light to guide them. So basically what's going on here is that Pelly's messages from beyond, as contained in the Golden Scripts, say there won't be an atomic Armageddon. Well, it's 1953 and things are looking pretty atomic Armageddon-y, but now the saucers are, are sort of the proof that we are going to be saved. It's a much more messianic vision of what the saucers are than you get in a lot of a lot of things. And then he goes into more predictions of what's to come. Now come the same authoritative statements with the import that between 1953 and 2030, cumulative good and blessing accrue to the human race, that great entities watch over the welfare of man, and that the Christ of Galilee comes into his own and takes suzerainty over the nations with the help of a host. What if the host be the occupants of the saucers? Well, we're about eight years out from the end of this prophecy, and I'm, oh gosh, good and blessing accruing to the whole human race? I don't know. I don't, I don't think that's really happening. So let's get into more deeply his idea of where the flying saucers fit into all of this. Accompanying such promises come the sudden saucer phenomena. Beings from higher planets are obviously scouting our Earth planet in heavy numbers. What if they be bound on the friendliest of Christ missions? People 10 to 50,000 years in advance of us in culture and mechanical discovery are making factual appearance that portends great developments among this earth race. Does anyone imagine for an instant that the author of the Golden Scripts would not be aware of the coming of these visitors? The report has it that when Adamski confronted the occupant of the saucer that came down near Blythe, California last November 20th, he said that something about the sky visitor caused him to feel like a barbarian in the presence of a god. Perhaps Adamski was standing in the presence of a god. Remember, a god is merely a conscious being who happens to know more than we do. 
Let us not be surprised if the saucer men are appearing at this time in pursuit of the very objectives which the Golden Scripts so tacitly portray. So here is our Pelly adamski connection. Now, terms of parole, all of that, Pelly couldn't go to California to visit Adamski. Don't know the degree to which Adamski might have visited Pelly in Indiana, but it's fairly clear from things I've read that they are corresponding at this time. They are getting messages back and forth. And honestly, I'm pretty sure that uh, that Williamson was the go-between with this. But also, I love this. A god is merely a conscious being who happens to know more than we do. That means I am a god to anybody who knows less about anything than I do. That's that's pretty handy. So we've got the the the, the saucer men here. What does the government have to do with this? What's the government's position on all of this, according to whoever wrote this article for Bright Horizons magazine? Consider the saucer men from foreign orbs. It is coming to be known inside a select circle that they are actual, but government won't acknowledge their existence, fearing to start a panic or cause drastic reactions to federal preparedness programs. The great rank and file might not see much sense in tilting our airplane production this year to an 18,000 lead over Russia if armadas of saucers are on their way in from Venus to blow the planet to the Pleiades. It amounts to that. Why make vast quantities of shells to give away to anti-red forces in Indochina if a spaceship can anchor 40 miles up and pulverize whole continents with explosives we don't know about? Pelly goes on to lament the fact that, from his perspective, the majority of UFO books, tracts, magazines, newsletters, and things that he has read seem to play up a doom and gloom scenario not only about the future of Earth as well as the intentions of the saucer men themselves. And in mid-1953, that that might not be too far from the truth. Adamski's stuff had just gotten off the ground. We have not yet had the huge contact E-wave. And Pelly is sort of getting in on the ground floor of the mindset that the space people might be benevolent rather than invaders. In, in fact, that they are benevolent rather than invaders. And he does this by working the entire thread into his own pre-existing tapestry of prophecy. Pelly also worries about, or not worries about, but rather makes an observation about the political and geopolitical status of the saucers. The irony of the current saucer situation is that groups of Washington politicians can't promise enlistment of the saucer men on their side of the controversy, whatever the controversy is, so they permit no saucer ballyhoo. With the things flying right over their own capital, they permit no ballyhoo, because they can't be used by the party to win next year's election. They don't exist. As much as I despise the word mayhap, I adore the word ballyhoo. I think we need more use of the word ballyhoo. And I am going to have to work the phrase, I permit no saucer ballyhoo. I'm going to have to work that into episodes in the future. Pelly concludes this article with, or whoever's writing it, I'm pretty sure it's Pelly, with more links between the arrival of the saucers and his own prophetic writings. Or rather, the writings of the messages he received from the magic voices, I guess I should say. However, somebody should get as reliable word as possible to the contingent with intelligence that true help is at hand, and the Armageddon may be over before it is fairly begun due to the assistance of people who need no press agents to factualize themselves in the public regard. 
One thing is certain. The coming of the saucer men makes interpretable several pertinent master messages that were purposely left out of the golden scripts because the appearance of a host in the skies was first taken as an allegorical alluding. Now it begins to come clear that in these unpublished master messages, it was the host of the saucer men that was being indicated. Bright Horizons will therefore publish some of these beginning with the October issue. Actually, the peon is clear that there is naught but good impending for man. Friends are appearing to aid him out of interstellar space. What does man want for proof that there is a god and that he is on man's side? You answer it. So once again, Pelly is using the flying saucers, using the space people, as a way to bolster his own prophetic spiritualist outlook. And this is something we're going to see in these articles that I've been able to find, is that Pelly is is grafting UFOs, flying saucers, onto his pre-existing thing that he is selling to people. This is not about flying saucers. This is about bolstering soulcraft, just the latest iteration of of the spiritualist ideas that go back all the way back to the 1920s for Pelly. And there's a book that comes out around this time called Star Visitors that I read it is impenetrable and boring and mostly a restatement of the ideas he had for a long time, only sort of allowing the UFO stuff to drift in a little bit as proof of his longstanding claims about souls on other planets being the source of life on Earth. But one thing that does persist in Pelly's sort of soulcraftian conception of what the saucers are is the profound moral goodness and superiority of the space people. In the October 1953 issue of Bright Horizons, there's an article entitled, Would You Take a Ride in a Flying Saucer? With a a sort of subheading, a question not to be answered carelessly. And in this article, Pelly explains his conception of the space people's goodness and why they are good. The older a people grow in civilization, the more compassionate and understanding they become of those of backward development. The greater the age of their culture, the more spiritual they show themselves automatically. Experience makes them so. A people capable of constructing aircraft that could leave distant bodies in the galaxy and journey to this solar orb would be so profound and venerable of intellect as to regard our terrestrial provincialism as a display of racial childhood. Souls hoary with age and experience of Earth and human suffering don't harm or conquer children. Any residents of neighboring planets or even planets of star suns far out in the infinite coming through our skies to visit us would perforce have institutions and resources beside which our natural possessions would be as the crude elementals of either savages or youngsters. Their reactions would savor more of pity for our immaturity than sanguinary desire to commit atrocities against us. Why should they commit atrocities? What would they gain? If there's one sort of contacty trope that I have really gotten tired of seeing over and over again, it's this sort of fallacious notion that advanced civilization or technology automatically imbues moral goodness and peacefulness. I, I just, I don't know. I don't see much actual real world application of that theory. So this article also goes into the topic of UFO witnesses or flying saucer witnesses and what they have to say about the space people. Our United States contains people of reliability and distinction who have not only beheld the spacecraft in close proximity, but 
conversed with their occupants who have landed their aerial vehicles and descended to the planet's surface. The publishers of Bright Horizons have been privileged to correspond with these personages, the people of reliability and distinction, read many of the reports, study the photographs of the craft at close range, which they have secured with commonplace cameras. Not just reliable persons, persons of reliability and distinction, which is which is great. So what Pelly is saying is so they've gotten letters from people and one presumes these are letters not just from George Adamski, but these are letters from readers all over. Sort of a, a parallel. He's probably not make, consciously making this a parallel, but kind of like when American Magazine got thousands of letters in response to his Seven Minutes in Eternity article back in the 1920s. So he shares some things that people have written to him about the space people. I like this excerpt in particular. One letter states, They pick up your thoughts like a beam of light. They are very shy people. Odd that most folk are afraid the spaceship occupants will be hideous monsters. We are the monsters. They are physically beautiful beyond earthly description. There is a light which shines forth from them. It sounds very contactee-ish, but more religious experience-y-ish, perhaps. Uh, the, the light shining forth from them and the, the comparison, again, we are the monsters, they are the beautiful people, we are the evil ones because we are not as advanced as they are physically or spiritually. Pelly asserts that the space people are here to provide a kind of cosmic first aid for a people who are in distress, that Earth is at a dangerous tipping point, and the space people are here to sort of bring us into a new age of spiritual enlightenment and goodness and things like that. And he closes the article with another assertion of the goodness of the space people. All the reliable contacts with the saucer occupants to the moment indicate their well-nigh angelic natures. It is, on the whole, a time for us to be readily civil and even hospitable to these celestial friends, for we may yet come to consider them that, and see what the service is they may perform. As for Jeannie and Joe and Tom and Annabelle making up a party and taking a ride in a saucer just for the thrill, it may be a long time before that happens. The people at the controls of the saucers have more serious business. But would you take a ride in a flying saucer if your life depended on it? Store the answer away in your memory, because you may have use for it. I sort of see a spectrum emerging of contactee-ish positions on the benevolence of the Space Brothers and, and what their intentions are. On the one hand, you have the sort of Adamski school, which is these are advanced, civilized, spiritually mature beings who want us to be like them, but they they can't get us there themselves. We have to do that hard spiritual work of improving ourselves. And you've got sort of the the Van Tassel Ashtar wing of they are here to help us in a more active way. They are monitoring the situation on Earth, and there are those who will be rescued if things get bad. And Pelly, who is not a who is not a contactee in the sense of claiming UFO contacts himself. He has his own messages he receives from those higher beings, as we've seen throughout this episode, but he is amplifying contact claims, and, and he is positing a, an almost sort of missionary interventionist 
rescue of humanity by the beings. It's interesting to see how the, um, the, the sort of generic trope of benevolent space brothers does have some variations as far as intentions and what their mission actually might be. The November 1953 issue of Bright Horizons has an article entitled How These Space Guests May Alter our ideas of God and the cosmos, how great intellects from other planets may straighten us out on religious issues. So what do you think Pelly thinks might be the way that these aliens straighten us out? Let's find out. What the spaceman may reveal is the wondrous possibility that the high moral attainment and psychical acumen of the Christ constitutes more or less common culture on other worlds above ours. And what the spacemen proceed to demonstrate to their personal temperaments is the ultimate to which all humanized life evolves, given opportunity and civilization old enough. What he's basically saying, a little unsurprisingly, at least to me, is that what the space people will reveal to us is that Pelly's ideas were correct all along, that there is this evolution of the human consciousness and soul to become more attuned to the Christ consciousness as Pelly perceives it. And the rest of the article goes on to to basically tie in Pelly's ideas from the golden scripts and other things he's written to what the uh, what the aliens say according to what contactees have said. Again, it's very much merging contactee talk with Pelly's long-standing spiritualist ideas. And in the articles I've been able to find, there's not really anything technical or sort of detailed about the beings. We don't learn about what planet they're from. We don't talk about the spaceships. There's nothing like, is this technology something that the Nazis were working on? Pelly was a fascist. Pelly was friendly with the Nazis. Pelly is not your classic Nazi flying saucer guy, which I, I think maybe hasn't been explicitly stated in what's come down to us after, you know, the fact and, and sort of people who tie these things together. But sometimes that's the impression you get uh, sort of loafing around online is that Pelly was sort of this this genesis point for the, the Nazi flying saucer trope. And while we are going to get more into that at some point down the road, Pelly isn't that. His angle is different. His angle is on this this spiritualist aspect, which is really the only thing he can talk about under the terms of his parole after we get past World War II and his imprisonment. The Pelly thing is honestly more complex than just Nazi flying saucers. Now, the December 1953 issue of Bright Horizons contains an article entitled What the Soulcraft Mentors Say About the Spacecraft. So the Soulcraft Mentors are, in 1953, the current name for the beings who have channeled information or clairaudiently transmitted information through William Dudley Pelly. And this is a reprint of something called the Portals of Light Discourse. And it's specifically about the significance of the saucer phenomena. And again, it's very much in tune with Pelly's notions of the spiritual evolution of humanity. But you start to see some of his sort of racial ideas bleed into some of this as well as for as far as why humanity has not advanced further at least according to the soulcraft mentors there could be a state of spiritual education where sheer observance is enough to detect the wrong from the right and the right from the wrong if your early racial specimens had not mixed species in a vast sodomy and degraded your own celestial heritage and intelligence 
you would be noting what we are talking about now. You cannot do it with the same animal handicap befogging your cognizance. So your sorrowful planet and the life it holds on it matures. When we say heaven is all about you, we speak more truthfully than you suspect. Heaven is all about you indeed, in literal worlds as far removed from you as day is from night. Pelly also got some interesting mail. The other morning here in Noblesville, I sat opening the mail. Suddenly I came across a letter postmarked from Prescott, Arizona. I slid it open and started reading. And the dear lady who aids me in this task of correspondence every morning of the year can attest to the strange rash of startlement that arose on my bared forearms as I ran my eye through a communication and testimony from one of the men in the West who tell me they are in conscious communication with the occupants of the spaceships. Let me read you the letter he wrote me, deleting only those matters that have no bearing on this discourse. The author of the letter describes the contact they had with their space friends. I do wish you could have been present when we received our code messages from space and from some of the other planets themselves. We even had contact with other solar systems, although of course our weak puny code was transmitted and relayed by spacecraft in our atmosphere. The information is astounding. Yes, they are thousands, even millions of years ahead of us. Yet there are far distant systems that seem to be beneath us in progression. But in this section of the universe, we are the backward ones. Make no mistake, these space friends are coming from many different places, of all different degrees of attainment. Recently, I was in Indiana. If I had known of you then, you can be sure I would have stopped over to see you, for we have information that I know you would be thrilled over. Hmm, I wonder who this person might be. Any publicity you care to give our forthcoming book, The Saucer Speak, will be greatly appreciated, as we need all the help we can receive to get this truth before our people. Yes, that's right. It's George Hunt Williamson. And he also tends to sound like he's agreeing with Pelly about some spiritual aspects of these saucer visitations. Yes, our space friends have developed tremendously along spiritual lines. We discovered this in our own work. One night, after completing our work for the evening, we sat around the radio equipment discussing a problem common to all of us. The transmitter was off. We were sending no message on the problem and therefore expected no answer, but the receiver was still on. After about 40 minutes of concentrating on the problem at hand, hoping for a solution, the receiver began to respond in code. Our friends knew our problem, were answering it for us. Remember, we were not consciously trying an experiment in ESP, but here it was undeniable evidence and proof that they had received our very thoughts. We never cease to thank our infinite father for his goodness in allowing us to be the recipients of such a thing. The spiritual development here, though, isn't necessarily like the same sort of thing Pelly talks about, though, is it? This is more the evidence of their spiritual development is the sort of ESP communication they were able to share. But this seems to be the, the moment where Williamson enters the Pelly um, milieu, if milieu is the word I'm looking for, which it might not be. So we've got this intersection. Williamson will, for a short time, about a less, about a year or so, maybe a little less, write articles on saucer contacts for Soulcraft's publications, such as Valor. But for the most part, 
the saucer thing is very much a sideline for Soulcraft. The business of Pelly is in selling Soulcraft materials to people. And looking at articles from the Noblesville newspaper during the 1950s up until Pelly's death in the early 1960s, what we see mostly is Pelly talking to local groups about Soulcraft. Some flying saucers enter the mix. Uh, there are, I think the Washington Post had a jokey little thing about how former, you know, fascist seditionist William Dudley Pelly is now on the flying saucer deal, uh, sort of using that to mock him. But for the most part, Pelly was obsessed or consumed rather, maybe not obsessed with making money from his publications. And that was mostly focused on Soulcraft and that spiritual angle rather than the flying saucers. I think the flying saucers might have been a way to try to hook people who might be interested in that and, and sort of providing some support for his prophetic ideas and messages he had received. Interestingly, one of the the strongest threads I saw running through the news reports about Pelly locally after um, after the 1950s when he resettled in Evansville after getting out of prison is that he undertook several attempts to try to have his sedition conviction vacated and overturned and, and wiped from the record. It never worked out. His uh, his claim was was largely based on the fact that he had had very poor defense counsel, which, I don't know, he, you call your client Mr. Hitler in the trial where he's accused of, uh, of spreading Nazi propaganda. That, not a good look. So in wrapping up, I just want to just talk a little bit about these connections between Pelly and, and the contactee movement. It's pretty clear that because of the terms of his parole, Pelly wasn't leaving Indiana. He, he couldn't. So I think face-to-face -face meetings between Pelly and Adamski are probably not what happened. I think there was some correspondence, certainly. Beekman makes clear, however, that Pelly in, in the early 1950s was doing a lot of reading and a lot of studying about the entire UFO field, not just the contactees. So I kind of wonder if... Pelly was looking at this new UFO phenomenon and saw this one aspect that he could apply to his Soulcraft stuff. I don't think there was some kind of, you know, collective club where they're all getting together and sharing these ideas. I, I think it was much more casual and happenstance than that. The addition of Williamson is interesting because as Beekman points out, there are some aspects of Williamson's UFO, New Age, spiritual writings that echo some elements of Pelly as, as far as the spiritual development of man and the connection between the space people and ancient uh, ancient Earth and ancient human civilization. And while the story is usually, you know, Pelly introduced you know, fascist ideas into the UFO scene, I think this is more of a case that UFOs infected his spiritualism. Um, I, I think the real story here is not just that Pelly had been a fascist, you know, mil militant group leader in the 1930s, and then he segued into flying saucers. I think the flying saucer aspect of Soulcraft is part of the larger story of the place of the contactee movement within the fringes of American spiritualism. And I think the UFO thing for Pelly is much more in tune with his spiritual beliefs than his political fascism. Now, his his racial ideas and his, his prejudices and his bigotry come through in that one selection we heard, for example, but it's 
it, it, like I said earlier, it's more complex than this is the start of the Nazi flying saucers, which is which is something I've seen people say in places over the years. But it's more complicated than that. And I, I think that's where we're going to leave it because I'm out of Pelly flying saucer writing and we've been going a very long time. Thanks for listening. Remember to send your questions and comments in via the usual social media or email channels. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media, LLC. Chizo Media, we permit no saucer ballyhoo. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.